0: Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Frederick Lane. How are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? Glad to have you and very good. I can introduce you in any number of ways. The way we met was through my past guest, Jethro Jones, who had one of the most amazing personal commitments that we'll probably get to talk about in a little bit. And actually, well, it was riding his bike to work and back every day for a school year where he's a school principal. And he lives in in Fairbanks, Alaska, or did at the time. So minus 40 degrees. And I've just been riding my bike here in uh, Manhattan, in Brooklyn, in Queens, and it's been a mere 27 degrees, I think it hit, maybe a little (laughs) bit, a couple degrees below that. So what is that Celsius? Negative, you know, it's below freezing. But you've written many books. The one that I've been looking at was Cyber Traps. Well, you had Cyber Traps for Young, Mm -hmm. Cyber Traps for Teachers and Educators. That's correct. And you've written about the decency wars. That's what got you on. When I was just watching you on Jon Stewart as well, which I, we're definitely going to talk about that.
1: <laughs> well, it's a ridiculously younger version of me, but yes, that was a lot of fun.
0: And you were just talking about the book that's coming up. I'm going to start with that. What's the book that's coming up? Can you tell us a little bit about
1: that? Okay, sure. The book that is coming up will be my 11th overall, and the title of the manuscript, we'll see if it changes, is The Rise of the Digital Mob." And it's going to be published by Beacon Press. It'll be my third book with them. And I'll allude to a fourth, actually, that I'll be working on once this is done. But The Rise of the Digital Mob is designed to help people understand the ways in which computer technology originally and then digital communication has affected the way we interact with each other. So what I'm trying to do is to provide some historical context for the rise of social media. So you can really trace it back to computer bulletin boards. You're probably old enough to remember using those or mm-hmm. Usenet in colleges and universities. All of these kind of proto-social networks that enable people to communicate directly in ways that really hadn't existed before. And as you take a look at the historical growth of electronic communication, you see also the growth of many of the behaviors that are troubling our society today. I mean, in the day on Usenet and bulletin boards, they had cute names like flame wars, right? Everybody shouts in all caps and it was sort of amusing and, and people would get all bent out of shape. Now we've got trolling, we've got doxing, we've got you know very malicious behaviors that are having a discernible real-life impact on people. And what I'm trying to do is to explain how we got here, what it's doing to our society, and what some of the things might be that we could do to minimize the harm that's occurring.
0: This is of tremendous personal interest to me, I'm sure to everybody, because we've all read about someone being cancelled in every direction. We've read about people finding, you know, something that happened a long time ago, they lose their job for it. I mean, your books are full of these things.
1: Sure, I do want to if I may Joshua, I want to push back a little bit on the word cancelled mm-hmm. because I do think that that gets used uh, quite broadly these days, and I think we need to distinguish between instances in which someone someone loses their platform, loses their ability to work merely for having an opinion that is generally within the guardrails of society mm-hmm. and people who, Suffer consequences for saying things that really should be outside the guardrails of a decent society. And I think one of the examples is the Gina Carrera case that just arose. Uh, She's the actress actress on Mandalorian. Was. And was, right? (laughs) And she was dropped by Disney because she shared an image of a woman being pursued in her underwear by actual Nazi soldiers during World War II. And she tried to make the comparison that what happens to conservatives today is the equivalent of that woman being chased by actual Nazis. And so I think we can have a really good discussion about how we determine whether a statement is so hurtful in how it's presented or how it's made That it actually crosses the bounds of decent society. Now, I'm not saying that she has, that she should ever be dropped from a show just because she's a conservative, even a rigorous hard right conservative. But I'm grappling, and this is really at the core of the book I'm grappling at whether or not we still have the ability in society to say certain expressions of speech, certain, certain comments are so damaging, so hurtful, that there should be consequences for having made them. And otherwise, we simply say that there's no limits whatsoever. And then we find people censoring themselves. We find people unwilling to engage in the public sphere because they're so worried about the attacks that they might receive.
0: I'm glad you made that distinction. And I think the core of the distinction, if I heard you right, was Sometimes people say stuff that's within the bounds, and everyone would say that's fine, but it got out in some way. And there's things that are within the bounds and things that are outside the bounds of, I don't know how we describe the bounds. <laughs> uh, so that's not so, I mean, you're, you're, but before we go into that. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back a step. And you're a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you're a parent. You've been on boards of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you bring us up to speed on what? How'd you fo- choose the direction that you've gone in, and, and
1: why? Serendipity is is a is a important word in my life, I think. <laughs> well, real quickly, I you know graduated from Boston College Law School in 1988. I clerked for a couple of years in a U.S. federal court uh, down in Springfield, Massachusetts, and honestly, that was partly the trigger although I didn't realize it at the time, because you would get as a law clerk to help the judge write the opinions in the cases. And I absolutely adored that. And I should have recognized how much I enjoyed that. But instead, I moved up to Burlington, Vermont. I worked at a couple of law firms for about five years, discovered I hated the day-to-day work of being an attorney. I'm not great at confrontation. It is not a skill set for me. A lot of law, particularly uh, in that context, is confrontational, you know, trials. Obviously, It's structured confrontation, but it's still confrontation. And it, it was not a good fit for me. And so I spent a little bit of time using my long experience with computers, doing computer consulting for law firms and stuff like that. And the real trigger for me, and I, you, know, you never see this stuff coming, I think, is that in 1996, Congress passed the Communications Decency Act, which attempted to make the transmission of merely indecent material on the internet a felony. And as an attorney, particularly as one with an interest in the First Amendment, I knew that was blatantly unconstitutional. And I was really fascinated about why that bill got passed. So I began digging into it, and it was an overreaction by Congress to the rise of the online adult industry. And I don't know the extent to which you know this, but the online adult industry was the real innovator in the first decade, by and large, of the World Wide Web, say from 93 to 2003, when everything imploded. I got the idea to write a book about that. And it was initially going to be a parenting book. And I loved the title to this very day. I wanted it to be, what's that computer doing under your mattress? You know, this idea of the hiding the Playboy. But through a couple of agents and editors, it wound up becoming more of a sociological economic study of the rise of the online adult industry, which we called obscene profits. And one book followed another in, in very unpredictable ways.
0: So, yeah, okay, so I hear the serendipity, and uh, but yes. also uh, I hear passion. I hear that oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe if not for the adversarial part, for the how do you regulate this stuff, or how do you, how, is it worth trying to, and really diving into the center of the controversy.
1: Yes, I think, you know, I went to law school because I am fascinated by the law. And, you know, law, of course, is one of the ways in which we structure our society. And constitutional law and free speech in particular are very important to me. So those have always been part of my view of the work I do. It turned out that law school was superb training for the writing I do because a lot of my writing has a legal spin to it in one way or another. And it's very useful when I'm talking to audiences or going out to conferences and so forth to have that training and to be able to bring that in Obviously, it's been, gosh, what has it been now? It's been 26 years since I practiced. So it's a, it's a little bit of a haul. But I still stay up to speed, obviously, on the on the stuff that's relevant to me. And constitutional law changes surprisingly slowly. So that's easy.
0: My understanding, usually when I read or watch something about someone talking about these issues, they have a voice that they want to, uh, not just a voice, but you know they, they got a dog in the fight. They want it to go one way, they want it to go the other way. But I think lawyers often look at things and say, well, one side, one party says this, another party says that. Here's some precedent. What do we make of this now? And it's a more, I mean, you might call it adversarial, confrontational, but I find it, it's kind of like the neutral point of view in Wikipedia. It's, it's not trying to take sides. It's trying to help people view or frame the issue.
1: Right. I mean, look, I, if I had stayed in law the thing I would have loved most would have been ultimately to be a judge. That to me would have fit very nicely into my personality and the work that I like to do. And what you're describing, Joshua, is actually a little bit closer uh, to what we would refer to as appellate practice, right? It's more cerebral. It's more, you know, thoughtful from my perspective. It's trial practice and, and, Settlements of lawsuits and so forth—that is the most confrontational. So once you move up the ladder a little bit, it, it gets more academic, which is, you know, clearly given what I've done over the last twenty years, more of what I should have been doing or aiming for uh, in the first place. After obscene profits came decency wars. Uh, no, actually, though, I did a book called *The Naked Employee*, which is the only one of the books actually that's out of print. I may update that in a couple of years, but the point of that was. To really start looking at the privacy issues that were arising in the workplace because of the implementation of technology, and that seemed you know what ended up happening—it's actually a funny story. You talk about serendipity. So I do this book, Obscene Profits, and I'm studying what the online adult industry is doing to the internet and and to the functioning of uh, various institutions. And one of the things I realized, because I was talking to adult webmasters, was that they could track the opening of workplaces across the country, because remember, this is in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, And the only places that had decent internet speeds were workplaces. So people were going into work and they were flipping on their computers and they were visiting porn sites. And the, I mean, these webmasters would be sitting around having drinks, laughing, you know, laughing hysterically because they literally could watch the lights go on across the United (laughs) States. And so it became clear, you know, businesses couldn't tolerate that. It's a hostile work environment. It's not productive, all the rest of that. So you began to see immediately in response to what the online adult industry was doing, the rise of surveillance software, monitoring software, so on and so forth. So that seemed like the logical next book. And then the decency wars came about because I was sitting watching the 2004 halftime show and I saw the, what was it? It was something, it was the 17, no, it was was 32 one hundredths of a second. Glimpse of Janet Jackson's breast, and that was enough to launch a multi-million-dollar federal investigation that ended up finding one of the CBS stations. Actually, interestingly, Justin Timberlake just apologized to Janet Jackson. And one of the things I've always taken pride in is that when that book came out in 2006, you know, I took a very firm stand that Timberlake had been a jerk about how he had behaved and. That the reaction to those two stars was blatantly misogynistic. That Jackson's career hit a real valley for you know several years, whereas Timberlake basically just took off, and it was it was really unfortunate.
0: So you saw that, and that that led to the book.
1: Yeah, it led to the book because you know <laughs> don't forget that this was the George W. Bush administration, right? This is two thousand four. He's got an election coming up in the fall. And conservatives were already really disappointed with him, mainly because John Ashcroft, his attorney general, hadn't gone after the online adult industry with the vigor that they were expecting. They were expecting a wave of obscenity prosecutions, and maybe they wouldn't have gotten them if it hadn't been for 9-11. But 9-11 came along and reset everybody's priorities. You know, the evangelical right was still angry about that, so Bush saw this besmirchment, if you will, of America's national holiday as a great opportunity to appease the evangelical right. So he set Michael Powell, who's Colin Powell's son, actually, and chair of the FCC, he set Michael Powell on Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake, CBS, all the rest of it, And that's how that whole investigation unfolded. So again, this is getting back to, you know, a little bit less of obscenity, more decency type issues. But I wanted to understand why it was that the FCC could fine CBS for something that was so far short of obscene behavior. And on top of that was a mere flash, (laughs) literally Mm -hmm. a mere flash of a, a moment in Uh, you know, in a hours long spectacle. And so that's where that book came from. And I will tell you, um, I'm more than happy to talk about Jon Stewart, but I I do feel it is important as a writer to be uh, properly humble about how things happen. You know, you Mm -hmm. you say Jon Stewart, and that sounds like, oh my God, that's fantastic. I am convinced to this day that they had a cancellation for one of their (laughs) August shows. And the producer, who gets somewhere between fifty and hundred books a week from eager publicists, reaches into her stack of books and pulls out. Mon- you
0: think it was just random?
1: Well, not entirely random, but because it had a half-naked woman on the cover, so that made for a great visual. But I know for certain that nobody in that building had read that book before I walked into their studios. So uh, I'll, I'll
0: allow the i allow the humility, but I don't believe it. I, it the book <laughs> it's. Uh...
1: Oh, no, it's 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 important. Look, it was a great moment. And and it was really an awesome experience. But, you know, the joke I keep telling is it's great to get on once. But, you know, the real trick is to get on a second time. And that didn't happen. So.
0: Well, you're young. <laughs>
1: uh, not so. But anyway, it was it was a great time. And, you know, he certainly did take the issue seriously. And and he had faced a lot of attacks from people. You know, look, it's interesting, even though uh, the Stewart show the Daily Show, is a cable show and therefore not subject to the FCC. They still recorded at 6pm in the evening so that they could bleep out any expletives between then and I think it was released at what, 10 or 11? I forget what time it was on. So, you know, they were conscious of, of not attracting too much negative attention, even though they had every legal and constitutional right to say whatever they wanted.
0: You're in Brooklyn, you've never gone to see it live? By any chance, you know, if you go online, you, I've seen it live several times. It's free. You know, it's like you yeah. just have to get on just at the right time when there's tickets available. And
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't been in New York City for, for personal reasons for a couple of years. We'll be back there later this spring. Uh, but no, no, actually, I never did go down. It's, you know.
0: Well, post-pandemic, give it a shot. Yeah. It will. Yeah. Then, all right. Now I want to get into some more personal things because the listeners to my podcast and readers of my blog will notice that. Over the past roughly year, I've been introducing more about race and gender and sex into my stuff. Now, It's important. The podcast is about sustainability. And it was originally called Leadership and the Environment. So it was about leadership and the environment. And then over the past year or so, before saying it online, it occurred to me that there were strong parallels between, I'll put it this way, between, I took great inspiration from abolitionists. Who acted on, uh, especially the mm-hmm. British abolitionists in the late 1700s, early 1800s in England? William Wilberforce, Thomas Clarkson, are some of the big names.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the reason they were so important to me was that when before I'd never heard about them, I didn't really know that was a part of there's it. It a lot of history I don't know. <laughs> right. So people see that I don't fly. I haven't flown in, uh, I'm about to start my sixth year in, in, in about a month. Uh, I pick up other people's garbage. Uh, it takes me two years to fill up a load of garbage. And people look at that and think that I'm depriving myself. But when I do it, I'm not thinking of mine not getting takeout, which produces a lot of garbage, so I don't get it. And it's not, doesn't taste very good, in my opinion. That's a matter of taste. Sure. But I'm not thinking about missing out. I'm thinking about the people, you know, you see the pictures of the, of the garbage all over the South Sea Island's, and we know that the sea levels are rising. And we, this all the stuff that everyone knows about. Everyone reads the front page of the paper. And I'm doing it in, I'm looking across the ocean to the people who are at the receiving end of this that are helpless mm. for, to get the, re, however unintended, the side effect of my action. So I can't fly without jet exhaust coming out the back, without clearing land of wildlife and indigenous cultures to get the oil in the first place. So I'm acting in stewardship. And people mm-hmm. are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, but really it sucks because you're giving up what you really want to do and they don't believe me. And then I read about Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce who are living at the height of the British empire, the largest empire the world has ever known incredibly profitable industries that in Bristol and, and uh, London and what's the other city uh, where John Lennon is from Liverpool, Liverpool, which are like the height that's where like the slave trade and mm-hmm. profits are going. And they could live in the opulent splendor that everyone around them is, but they don't. And they look across the ocean and they say those people are suffering because of of the system that I will I cannot be a part of the system anymore. And on top of that, I must act to end it. To which everyone says, "Are you crazy? You, what can one person do?" It's it's been slavery has been around in every culture for thousands of years. If we don't do it, the French will, the the, the Spanish will, the Portuguese will, and just enjoy yourself. The equivalent of get some takeout, fly to, <laughs> fly to see the <laughs> Eiffel Tower, and yet they were successful. And so I. Look at them. I mean, slavery still exists today. Some, by some counts, there's more slaves today than ever. But it's illegal. They've changed culture, and this was a big inspiration to me. So it occurs to me, I want to make this parallel. Everyone says, everyone around me is like, makes a lot of sense. But if you say that in public, everyone's going to see the color of your skin, and no one's going to hear anything of what you're saying, and your voice might never be heard, even if there's something really valuable to be heard. Likewise, my learning leadership. For most of, the, I would talk about how it was from, I got it from leadership classes in business school. So I went to Columbia, Ivy League business school, right? That's a very noble thing. I mean, some would say privilege, but I would say uh, that's a fine place to learn leadership. But after business school, I started getting into dating, learning tr- attraction. And some people would say pickup artist stuff, but that's that, w- that never fit with me. And I became a dating that's coach good. and I would help men yeah. with attraction and things like that. But a lot of people hear something you know, they'll hear something that is not, was never a part of my experience, never part of my goals, never part of anything I did. And yet if I, my leadership is very much about being open and sharing yourself and not protecting your vulnerabilities. So it would be impossible for me to practice my leadership without saying where a lot of the practice came from. Of
1: course. Right. I think that. So, 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 so I
0: self-censored. So I just, I, I thought, well, if I'm going to get, if I'm going to get deplatformed, I better not say this stuff, but then I'm deplatformed if I
1: don't. Well, let me engage you on a couple of different levels there. For starters, let's do the deplatforming first because that's easiest. Take a pick, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, deplatforming, a little bit like being canceled, is one of those terms that people throw out, I think, because it is a triggering word, right? It it sounds like a bad thing. But I think sometimes it's not clear whether or not the reality that someone is experiencing actually constitutes deplatforming in its entirety, or are they merely not being given the opportunity to put their message into a channel that they want to be in? Great example, which is not in any way analogous, I think, to, to your personal experience, but I've been thinking about this a lot in the political realm. Um, Josh Hawley, right? Josh Hawley, after the January insurrection at the Capitol, lost his book deal with Simon and Schuster that he had signed. And instantly, he started protesting the fact that he had been deplatformed. He was being canceled. He went on Fox News to say he was being canceled. Deplatformed.
0: The irony. Yeah.
1: He had an op-ed in the New York Daily News to say he had been deplatformed. And on top of that, Regnery Press, which arose in the 1950s, along with the National Review and William F. Buckley, picked up his contract. And the grand irony of the whole thing is that Regnery is a subsidiary of Simon and Schuster. So when I hear the word deplatformed, I am really looking at the individual and and asking. What is your capability of having your voice heard? And obviously, a U.S. senator has myriad opportunities. The other piece of it, I think, which is directly relevant to what you're talking about, is this balance, right, between the openness that you see as being valuable to you as a thought leader and as a leadership coach, right? That's an integral part of the service and the education you provide. That is in tension with the concept of privacy. And to me, privacy is not an object that you drop and lose and it's gone forever. Privacy is a process. Privacy is your ability to control the use or misuse of a piece of information. And we're all making this calculation. If I share a piece of information online on social media, I have to recognize the potential because of the nature of social media that I will lose control over that information. And someone can use it in ways that I might not like. So, for instance, when I'm talking to educators and I discuss with them this issue of social media, they need to... And yes, at the end of the day, Joshua, it absolutely is self-censorship, right? Because in an ideal world, we could put everything out there and not have to worry about misuse. But we don't live in that world. And so when I talk to teachers, I tell them, look, you have a certain role in society that is part of your job. And if you put certain information out on social media, there is a risk that it will be viewed as not consistent with your role model obligations, and it will be used in ways you don't want. So people just need to make a rational choice about how much information they put out and the relative value of sharing that information against the possible misuse. Now for you, you know where where you're actively building a brand based on your leadership experience. The calculus may be a little different. I
0: have no way of predicting. Well, of course, what how something could be used because any five words in a row might be put somewhere in some way. even if I don't share this stuff?
1: Well, we haven't even gotten to deepfakes yet, which is you know the capability to use AI programs to make any one of us say anything
0: to make an image of that.
1: Yeah, but you can do it with audio. You can do it with audio as well. I, I don't mean image. It, it doesn't make me say it. it. I see what you're saying, right. It has a
0: representation of me saying it.
1: Yes, yes. And it shapes how you are viewed potentially.
0: Yes. I'm going to leave that one for now because that's, <laughs> that would be totally out of my control. But the yeah. idea of sharing, you know, to me, these role models of people who changed an empire. yes. And then influenced, you know, Garrison, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, in, in America yes. later, and who then influenced Lincoln and Tubman and all these, and and Douglas. Mm-hmm. They changed an empire, and that empire was as powerful in that time as maybe more so than than fossil fuels today. What a great set of role models for in a world of filled with people saying what one person does doesn't matter, what I do doesn't matter, what difference does it make?
1: Well, look at Greta Thunberg, one girl who refused to go to school. And she has helped to spark a growing awareness of climate issues.
0: Yeah. I'm not going to explain to others how, yes, Greta did it, therefore you can too. That would be a message someone could go with, but that's not my message. Sure. I'm not going to stop anyone from sharing that message. But these role models, I mean, William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson, they're incredible role models. And I'm struggling now. I guess I started with this idea maybe nine months ago, and I'm still struggling with like how to exactly to bring it out. And I mean, this conversation is part of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess that's that's a struggle of these times.
1: Look, I, I, it's interesting you, you raise this particular angle. My wife, Amy, is a professor of art history at the Fashion Institute of Technology. And since she got there seven years ago, she has been teaching African-American art, at least one or two classes per semester. And she has a, routinely, has a very multiracial collection of students. And she really grapples with the fact that she is a white professor teaching African-American art. And overall, the reception has been positive. But, you know, she's definitely had one or two students who have said, you you know, you did a great job, but I really wish FIT had a Black professor teaching African-American art because there are insights, there are connections, associations that are, you know, just not necessarily going to be available to Amy, given her cultural background and so forth. And so these are very hard questions. You know, I understand, and this, you know, in, in listening to and talking to conservatives, you know, the pushback on this is that anybody should be able to teach anything they're qualified to teach. But, you know, the more I think, you um, Obviously, the more liberal position is that there are aspects of being an educator or a teacher that go beyond mere knowledge. And and these are the issues we're grappling with, aren't they? And I guess, you know, look, this is actually a great introduction because I'm in the process of working on the outline for my next book, which is going to be hashtag tech-sick masculinity.
0: So again. I'm sorry, hashtag?
1: Hashtag tech-sick. So T-E-C-H-S-I-C-K. Uh-huh. Tech-sick masculinity. So not toxic, but I'm playing around oh, tech, with the idea. Okay. Yeah. So the you know basically the concept, the short pitch of the book is, what is the impact of technology on men and maleness? And by definition, I'll be looking at gender. I'll be looking at the relative impact on men and on women, and so I'm going to be talking about things that people like Rebecca Traster or Roxanne Gray are obviously much more qualified to discuss than I am, simply on the basis of gender. And and I'm aware of the minefield into which I am stepping, but you know, hopefully, I can do it in a respectful way. We'll see.
0: Oh man, I got so much pushback when it was the Central Park woman who. Um
1: yeah, I have her book.
0: the The one about how she she called the cops on the black guy with the with her dog.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. No, I thought you were thinking about the jogger attack. You're talking about the bird lady. Yeah. Who just they just dropped the case. Yeah.
0: And I I, I posted about how yes, it's clearly racist, and it seemed very clear to be sexist as well. And I, I saw no one treat it as sexist. And then there was recently this. I imagine the sexes were changed if it was a, a black <laughs> oh God. I mean, a, a, a yeah. white man and a black. I mean, there's lots of different variations you can come up with. Sure. But I think that if she'd been a man, if it had been a black man and a white man, and the man had called in and said I'm being attacked by a black man, that would change things. And
1: oh yeah, absolutely.
0: And but no one treated it as as no one looked at the sex. And when I write, wrote about that, a lot of several people wrote me with like telling me what I was missing. And and I thought it was clear that yes, those things and this other thing. And then <laughs> right. recently there was this jazz musician whose son was um, accused of having stolen this uh, young woman's phone and. It was at the Soho, some hotel in Soho. I forget the details now.
1: I followed that too, yeah. Yeah, Didn't they find her in California or something like that? Yeah,
0: and they brought her back here for trial. I'm not sure what came from there. And they called her like the Soho Karen, I think.
1: Right, exactly. So this
0: was another case where everyone covered the racist aspect of it. And yes, it seemed seemed racist to me and sexist. I mean, this woman tackled the guy on camera. I mean, the the security camera caught her tackling him. And I, I can't imagine what would happen if a man tackled a woman even if the man was the same size of her and the woman was the same size of him. So you, you, you know, you bring, make the strength the reverse or.
1: Right. Well, you know, Joshua, I think a lot of. But no one treats it. Well, I I do think you're absolutely right about that. It, you know, look, there are a lot of deeply ingrained patterns in our society around the sustainability issues that you're obviously concerned about. I think what you're underscoring is those, those kinds of deeply ingrained patterns around gender exist as well. And they influence how we perceive events. And I completely agree with you. You know, if you flip around the genders, Amy actually is really good at this. She's like, if the outcome is different, if you flip the genders, then you have a sexism problem Mm -hmm. in whatever you're talking about.
0: So now we're two books into the future with you now. (laughs) Uh, But since you brought up sustainability, I'm going to, I'm going to, abruptly switch topics to Please sustainability. Do.
1: Yeah. Sure.
0: And I hope that if we end up having a future conversation recorded, I hope that we pick up where we left off on at least one of the things. It's kind of, we have several open threads.
1: Excellent. I'd like that.
0: Is the environment something that matters to you? Is it something you care about? Is it something you act on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. Amy and I spend a lot of time talking about it. We evaluate our choices. we, probably, I, I, I feel like you're this moral force to which I need to confess in a sense, but I you know, I would say we probably don't move as quickly as we should. And in anticipation of coming on this show, I've certainly been thinking about that. Um, but yes, the, the simple answer to your question is it matters deeply to us. So
0: before you act, I'm not asking what you do or what strategies you take on or looking forward what to do. What motivates you to act? What in your background or history or stories or images drive you?
1: Empathy for other people, compassion for other life forms on this planet. Coincidentally, I'm looking out my front window. There's a young deer underneath my bird feeder, you know, scarfing up the seeds that have been spilled that you can't look at. I'll speak for myself. I can't look at that animal and not feel compassion for its existence. That's just part of who I am. And then, you know, obviously in terms of the visible impact of our behaviors on the world, you know, you can't look at those children scrambling over garbage heaps in South America mm. without reflecting on what you've contributed to that.
0: Take me back to the, you just the deer that you're seeing now, Take me back to before that, because that's you're just seeing now, but you've been acting for a long time before you saw that particular mm. deer.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, to be honest with you, it's just, I, you know, this is a nature-nurture question, isn't it, at some level, Joshua? because I
0: want to get into philosophy just in your particular mind, and your particular heart.
1: I would say, look, I had, you know, probably the thing that I would point to is, you know, I had grandmothers who were bird watchers and bird feeders. Mm-hmm. that influenced me as a child that 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 they saw that as a positive good i enjoy being out in nature it is part of what i like to do and so i'm aware of my environment these things matter to me i am as you were saying i'm news aware mm-hmm. so to answer your question i think the fact that i would say i care about it stems from this mixture of upbringing and my own natural instinct.
0: When you're out in nature, can you tell me what you, uh, not everyone, you know, different people have a different experience of nature. Sometimes it's trees and sometimes it's clouds and sometimes it's fish. And
1: Mm. I think when we had you on our podcast, I talked about the fact that Amy and I had spent a year in England. We went over in August of 2019 and came back in October of last year. And when we could, because we're in lockdown for seven months of that, but when we could, one of the most enjoyable things that that Amy and I would do would be to take these long hikes—five, six, eight, ten miles—in the countryside. And it's the experience of sampling different terrain and different views, and you know what you see as you do it. So. For me, it's it's the peacefulness of it. It's it's the non-electronic piece of it. As you can imagine, I spend a lot of time in front of a computer. So the antidote is to disappear into the woods, along the coastline, on a beach. Amy and I, two, three times a week, will go for an hour-long walk on the beach. Just sometimes we chat, sometimes we just walk.
0: You're making me want to turn off the computer right now and head out. <laughs> Maybe you just lost a bunch of listeners. <laughs>
1: which i would be i would feel fine about
0: (laughs) with what you're talking about the the beaches the woods the the empathy the compassion as well as what you talked about the kids scrambling over the the garbage so i don't know what foreboding or a a fear i'm not sure i invite you at your option you don't have to do this but if you're up for it to think of something that you could do that you're not already doing to act on those things and this is a lot of people hear something i'm not asking i'm not saying what can you do to fix the world's problems it's not about mm-hmm. that at all there may be some effect but something that you know something physical that you do based on those things so that after you do it i'll ask you how it went on a you know a separate episode if you're game
1: sure absolutely because look the, what what i think you're getting at while well, i another part of my brain works on that issue i mean what you're talking about and i think it's good is a sense of accountability whether it's accountability to Yourself, or to uh, you know an external person who will ask you about it. I think these are an important as this is an important aspect of change. To answer your question, I think the the thing that Amy and I have talked about but have not implemented yet is the idea of doing a couple of meatless nights mm-hmm. per week as a way of of starting to reduce meat consumption. Now, by and large, although not exclusively, we get local local proteins. So that's something we have paid some attention to. But the next step would be to, to actually implement the thing that we've been discussing.
0: If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodekcom donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com donate now it's possible that because you've been talking about it, it connects with these earlier things. And I guess if you guys are maybe out on your walks, it comes up in that conversation. I just want to see, does this connect with what you were talking about before, about the experience of nature?
1: Well, it, it does in terms of understanding. And by the way, I'll do a quick shout out to one of my favorite old books, which is Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, if you really want to mm-hmm. be motivated in this direction. But absolutely, because look, you know, so much of at least American meat production is industrialized. Uh, the impact of the protein production is destructive. That was actually one of the things that we were very conscious about and helped to really get us on this conversation, which was over in England. We exclusively got our protein from the little butcher shop that was at the end of the block. And all of their protein came from within 15 miles of that butcher shop. And it was all local farmers. And it was vastly more sustainable than what we have here in the United States with the you know, massive agribusiness and so forth. So that connection is easy to draw.
0: Okay. And I'm going to add that uh, you said it's more sustainable. I'm going to throw in, I'm guessing that it also had a lot more community and connection and of course,
1: yeah. right? No, of course. I mean that these farm, you know, one of the things, actually I, I spent a lot of time studying Brexit while I was over there and while the previous administration was in office, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was running around saying that one of the solutions to the potential economic fallout of Brexit was that he was going to arrange this really terrific trade deal with the United States. And lurking in that was Johnson's willingness to accept American food standards to the detriment of British farmers.
0: Oh yeah, what a disaster.
1: Yeah. Oh, it would have been terrible, absolutely terrible. And and yes, there for a variety of economic and geophysical reasons, the farms in England are much much smaller than what you see in the United States, and so they're inherently more sustainable. They they're tied to the community. There are a lot of farmers markets. I know you talk a lot about that. It was much easier to avoid packaging actually in the little city we lived in than it is in the United States. Now, you've done, I mean, you've done a great job, and I want to learn more about that. But but in terms of the connection between the level of meat we eat and the impact on the environment, it's not a hard line to draw.
0: Okay. So then the next question is, uh, how long would it take? Oh, yeah, let's make it a SMART goal. So uh, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic time bound. How long, like how much of a reduction for how long before, if we have a second conversation, that if I ask you how it went, that you can say, you know, I've I've had enough experience with this that I can tell you this has happened or that's happened.
1: Yeah. I think, I think the way to measure this and it's, it's, it's actually a great exercise is to say at the end of any given month, how many meatless meals Mm -hmm. have you had? Okay. And so the goal, the goal would be, let's say for the month of March. Mm -hmm. So let's say we're going to start March 1st, by the end of March, that number would be a minimum of eight.
0: Okay, what would it be, what was it in February, a shorter month?
1: <laughs> well, I would say, I'm guessing right now, we probably so far in February, what are we, are at the 15th? I would say probably four right now. Is that including breakfast? Oh, well, <laughs> no, I'm just talking just dinners? dinners. Okay. Dinners, yeah. Breakfast is never, almost never any any meat. Yes to eggs, but I do eggs every other day and then we do smoothies. And Amy does smoothies every day.
0: Now, if you said if it's been four halfway through February and you want to do eight over March, oh, eight is the starting point. You want to raise that
1: number? Yeah, that is the starting point. The goal would be to increase that.
0: Okay, so uh, what would be a nice target?
1: I think a nice target would be 14 or 15, so about half the month.
0: All right. And are you, I, I you strike me, I, and I say this as a full geek myself, that you're geeky enough that yes. you like write this stuff down and keep on. A- oh, well,
1: let's see Excel spreadsheets, habit trackers, <laughs> take your pick. Yeah. Because I do a running streak, as as we discussed briefly on, on your podcast. On the, yeah. Yeah. On my podcast. And um, yeah, what is today is the 16th. I make days away from a thousand days. So yeah. Exciting. It is. Given my legs and ankles, it's very exciting. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm going to leave that for now. Uh, yeah, sure. I think running is healthy for these things, but that's another topic. So if we scheduled again for somewhere around April first or so, yeah. then we yeah. could talk about how things went, and I could ask maybe it worked, maybe it didn't.
1: I think that's actually a terrific idea because it would be a it would be an, a wonderful spur, and it would also be great to document. And again, this is like our dinners, and and one of the things to keep in mind too, which will help, is that given the way in which we cook, this will tend to spill over into lunches because you have leftovers and so forth. And so there's a nice collateral effect there. But in terms of doing 31 dinners in the month of March, an improvement would be to get up to about half of those being meatless.
0: I'm curious now, now I walked you through this process to come up with this commitment, this challenge. Yes. What's your motivation? Is it, is it, are you doing it for me?
1: No, no, no. The motivation <laughs> the motivation is to continue to improve improve the things we do, the choices we make in terms of how we live. So a good example is that I think probably for a year now Amy hasn't bought packaged orange juice for the smoothies. So she'll buy bags of juice oranges and squeeze the juice. So no carpal, that kind of thing. Or alternatively, uh, making her own almond milk, or I only drink loose tea. So no tea bags.
0: I'm going to give you a little thing here that most people are like, that's crazy. But the peels of citrus fruit are edible. And in fact, most of the vitamin C and all of the fiber, basically all the fiber is in the peel. I specifically get juice oranges because they have a very thin peel. And yeah. I don't care if it's separate. Most people don't get it because it's harder to peel because it's stuck, but they tend to be cheaper, sweeter, and have thinner peel. So I don't like if you. I don't know if you do smoothies in a blender, but if if you throw the whole thing in there, you'll get a bitter flavor. But it's to me, people eat peels when they cover it with chocolate or de- or like you know, <laughs> right. put it in, or in vodka. Or it in
1: sugar. Right, yeah, in right. sugar.
0: So they actually, you probably know that the boxed orange juice is not particularly healthy and nutritionally. It's like soda with vitamin C, but not many Americans have scurvy. <laughs> they take an orange, which is healthy, and they split it into two parts. One is just the juice, which becomes unhealthy. And then they put yeah. the peel in chocolate or sugar, and that becomes unhealthy. They take a healthy thing and they take it to two unhealthy things. <laughs> and people say, who eats the peel? Well, they eat the peel with the sugar. Well, the sugar's in the fruit anyway. Like, just eat it together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's what I yeah. do. And there's videos of me on my uh, blog, just taking an orange and just biting into it and eating it. And uh, I've gotten used to it. To me now, it's... Of course, it's. Uh,
1: I'll I'll give it a try, Joshua. That sounds good. You know, it's it's nice when you put a little bit of orange peel in an old fashioned, but that's uh, also not necessarily the healthiest approach.
0: I see this also a big leadership in thing that it's. Um, I think most people the reason they don't do it it's partly for the flavor, but people drink coffee. That's you know that's bitter and
1: yeah, yeah and yeah.
0: They, they love beer that's bitter and alcohol is you know like scotch is not exactly sweet. No, <laughs> and it certainly is. I think it's more that they're concerned of what will people think if they see, if someone sees them doing it and it's unusual and it's weird. So mm. by my doing it, they can say, well, it's just some guy on the internet did it. <laughs> then, right, it, well,
1: well and, and this gets us back to the ingrained patterns in society we are talking about earlier, right? It, it's not intrinsically crazy. It's just, we have ways of behaving. You peel an orange, that's what you do with it. So to to run counter to that, Take some fortitude.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm practicing. Why did I do that? Because I'm partly practicing my leadership skills. And right now, still to this day, bringing a bag with you to the store is weird. I see every day people walking back with double, triple bagged from mm. a store. And I know that they have plenty of bags at home. And the bag that I use is the same bag that I, I bought it in the 90s. It's like an old over-the-shoulder bag and it, it yeah. still works. It, you know it, I put things in and they don't fall to the ground. I'm not looking for, that's what, that's, you know, that's the goal. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, go to any thrift store and there, I mean, maybe not now because of the pandemic, but there's tons of tote bags and they're all like labeled from this conference or that conference because they just give sure. these things away. We're so loaded with bags that we're giving them away and yet people keep getting new bags. So to bring a bag to the store, to me, it's like, if I go to the store and I forget a bag, I just get what I can carry in my hands. Mm-hmm. And then that teaches me next time, remember the bag.
1: It's a good feedback, right? Yeah.
0: So I don't believe that leadership by example works in the area of changing people's habits. I think I can be a role model and I'm happy if people see me as a role model, but you have to lead people. It's different than, to be a role model gives them an example, but mm-hmm. most people look at the stuff that I do or that anyone does and they say, well, that you, know, you can do that, that works for you. But see, for me, it doesn't work because of blah, blah, blah.
1: Right, And right, people
0: have right, an amazing right. ability to do
1: that. Well, the rationalization function in the human brain is profoundly powerful. We we all know this to one degree or another.
0: Yeah, I call it uh, from a past guest, uh, Michael Moss, who wrote the book Salt, Sugar, Fat.
1: Oh, yeah. Great book. Yes.
0: And he said, that's the addiction speaking. Yeah. And once I heard that, that became part of my vocabulary, my lexicon. Oh, yeah. I talked about that on your podcast. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It stuck with me.
0: Yeah. Oh, let's, um, let's wrap up with you talking about your podcast, Cybertraps.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. With my co-host, Jethro Jones, whom you mentioned, he runs uh, or has been running the Transformative Principle podcast for about seven years. Uh, we teamed up to uh, take the work I've been doing on Cybertraps and bring it to an audience. So it's called the Cybertraps podcast. We talk about a variety of Digital risks that arise from the way in which people use technology, and we're trying to help them avoid them.
0: And I guess bring it, bring out a lot of people bring different examples of what how it's. I mean, it's surprising how many places this affects. I mean, we all live very digital lives.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because it gives us. Um, in, in Washington terms, a very broad brief of things that we can talk about because we can talk about it on the personal level, right? Send, you know, sending an email to your entire office when you only meant to send it to one person can be a cyber trap, uh, you know, having someone misuse a photo, yada, yada. And then we can work our way up into the organizational level, school districts, schools, and so forth. And a couple of our upcoming guests are actually at the national level working on cybersecurity for the Navy, uh, for a couple of other government agencies. So we're trying to give people a holistic look at the impact the technology is having and the thoughts that they should put into rational and careful use of that technology. In sort of a technological aspect, it's it, it has some similarities to what you're doing in terms of the environment, You know that we want people to be thoughtful about what they're doing.
0: And despite the gravity with which you speak and the importance of the things you're talking about, you and Jethro
1: are fairly playful.
0: It's, it's not like a, a heavy podcast. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> it's really not. I, I have a, a sense of humor. I have to bite my tongue occasionally not to try to be too clever. But, but yeah, we're trying to be entertaining when, you know, we're not going to go in all doom and gloom. But we want people to, to be drawn back, you know, so that they'll actually spend some time listening.
0: Well, we'll pick up again in about a month. No, I guess about a month and a half. After we hang up, we'll schedule if that's co- if that works for you.
1: Totally, yeah. No, I appreciate that. It's it's a nice way to do things, Joshua.
0: Glad to hear. And I predict that uh, here's something I, I oh, here, I'll, I'll give you a couple preparations. And one of them is that most people, things will come up that you cannot possibly predict. And the two big ones are travel and family that or other people so sometimes when people if you may end up being on the road in a way that you didn't expect and if that happens sometimes you don't have the choices that you do you don't have the control of your environment that you do when you're at home another is other people like you might find yourself out with friends more or people less in the pandemic it's gonna say <laughs> sometimes people say i will do a hard line and i'll stick with it no matter what if i have to you know go to the restaurant and not even order anything because i don't have any options for me i'll do it some people say well i'll you know one night it didn't work out, but I'll just you know chalk that down to experience. The one thing that doesn't work is to say, oh, I'm, I messed up. I give up. So prepare yourself that things will happen that you didn't mean. Or maybe you know, you'll know you talk, you know your wife better than I did, but maybe you'll say to her, uh, this is what I'm going to do. And she's going, to, I don't want to do that. And then you're going to be on your own. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm in the real protein. In this case, it won't happen that way.
1: I'm the protein driver. So she'll be thrilled if I'm like more on board with this.
0: So things might happen. The other yeah. is uh, I predict, here's my prediction. I make this with almost everyone is that I'm reading off of you that you, you anticipate a positive experience with this. Yes. And I would even bet money on this, that however positive you think it will be, When we speak the next time, it will be yet more positive, even when you take into account what I just said.
1: I like that. Setting the floor for expectations.
0: (laughs) The the joke I make is that if if we did make that bet, then you could lie to me and say it was less positive than it was in order to win the bet, but you would so much enjoy it that you'd be unable to lie and say (laughs) and hide the joy that came from it.
1: Well, that that's actually awesome. I like that. Well, I I actually so we'll see if that if that kicks in. I do look forward to renewing the conversation because there's a lot of important aspects to this. And, and uh, uh, if nothing else, I'll return with recipes, you know, because I'll have a chance to explore. I actually love to cook. So that's another motivation as well.
0: I look forward to hearing about that. Let's wrap up. Um, is there anything you want to say to the listeners before closing anything direct or something I didn't think to bring up?
1: No, I don't think so, Joshua. I think we've got a number of threads we can pick up on for another conversation. I just am grateful for the chance to talk to you. I admire the work you do.
0: Well, Frederick Lane, thank you very much. My pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, joy, community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodek.com/donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com/donate.